Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Mitch. And I'm your other host, DM Neil, a.k.a. Joke Maniac. And today we have a special guest from the Talking Beast podcast. We have Brian, better known as Glumpuddle, here to talk to us about fantasy worlds where animals are actually able to speak. So we're really excited to dive into that and talk about uh, adventures where animals can be part of the conversation. But Mm -hmm. before we do that, Neil... We have a couple five-star reviews. These three five-star reviews come to us from Canada. Yes, they do. And the first one is from Moose 93 five stars. Thank you for this podcast. Was turned on to this podcast thanks to the folks over at Bombarded, which, great podcast. If you're not listening, go do that. If you are a new DM like myself, this podcast is an absolute must. They answer all the thoughts and questions I had for D&D and all the questions I didn't know I had. So thank you, Sea Moose, for that wonderful name and that wonderful review. Yes, that is a fantastic name. Speaking of fantastic names, our next one comes from Jim the Epic and is entitled Plus One to DM Wisdom, five stars. Longtime fan and subscriber. Every time I start a new campaign, I go back and listen to old episodes for inspiration. Thanks for all the great podcasts and sharing a plethora of Dungeon Master knowledge. Keep up the amazing work. So thank you, Jim, and we will totally keep up the amazing work. We'll try to make that amazing work into epic work, just like your name. Yes. And to round it out, we have another one from Canada, as we mentioned, and this one comes from Wortmore, and they entitled it Finally Caught Up, Five Stars. I've been waiting until I was caught up to write a review, and now that I have, I can say with the absolute confidence that this is the best dungeon mastering and even some of the best storytelling advice on the interwebs. Thanks from Canada, DM Ronan. I love the idea that there was a chance that it wasn't going to get a review, (laughs) but thankfully, (laughs) thankfully, we followed through so that you could follow through with that amazing review. And with that, Neil, you know what time it is. Let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? The flat meat back on the menu, boys. So welcome back. For this segment of the meat, we are joined by Brian Carnell, aka Glum Puddle. You know, you may know him more as Glum Puddle, one of the hosts of the Talking Beasts podcast. So, Brian, welcome to the Dungeon Master's Block. Hey, Mitch, thanks for the invite. Okay. As always, we're going to have a little bit of an interview section. And my favorite question, because it is so open-ended, is there anything that you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? That's it. Just free form. Oh, you didn't say you you were going to ask about that. That's too difficult. I don't know if I can handle this, actually. (laughs) Um, Well, um, (laughs) oh boy, I should be an expert on this, I hope. Um, (laughs) But uh, so I'm a writer for NarniWeb.com, and uh, it's a Narnie movie news site and a fan community centered around the Chronicles of Narnie books by C.S. Lewis, the most famous of which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I first read them when I was about 12, and I just really enjoyed them. So I read them again and really, really enjoyed them, and so on and so forth. Just kept going back to them. And every time I went back to them, I just kept finding uh, more and more. And they ended up playing a huge part of my life and making me ask questions like, 
you know, why do humans keep feeling the need to create stories, especially hmm. fantasy stories? These are lies. Why do we keep on, why do we want to make up stuff? And why are we so apparently dissatisfied with the real world? And hmm. I think, you know, we all tr- like, maybe, maybe ask a lot of questions that had a huge impact on my life. I mean, I think we just kind of realize we turn on the news and we kind of go, we see what's going on in the world. And somehow we just know deep down, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And hmm. C.S. Lewis believed that this is because the world is not the way it was created to be. And deep down, we just kind of know there's something wrong. This isn't natural, and that's part of the appeal of fantasy. So Narnia made me ask those questions. I kept going back to them, and lo and behold, I found out I wasn't alone. And that's what drew me to Narnia Web. Yeah, it's that es- escapism that fantasy brings. I mean, that's that's the whole appeal for many people who play Dungeons mm-hmm. & Dragons is they get to sit down they get to role play a character in a world that has impacts, but it's mm-hmm. impacts away from this world that's impacting them all the time in real life. Yeah, right. And C.S. Lewis, even outside of, of Narnia, was interested in why is that so appealing? If if we're born into this world and we're just this is just the natural world, this is the only world we know. And why do why does every there are so many things that just instinctively tell us this is wrong this isn't the way it's supposed to be Mm -hmm. well what do you mean well how was it supposed to be why is that Mm -hmm. and there's he believed that fantasy fairy tales it kind of scratched that itch that desire that feeling we all have that there's something wrong here this Mm -hmm. isn't the way the world's supposed to be that's fantastic can i ask how many times do you think that you've read through the entire series cover to cover each of the books the average would probably read some more than others the average is probably about six or seven but then that does, that wouldn't even include like the bits I've read, little chunks of it, or really for a podcast or for a discussion or whatever, just focused on one chapter or one yep. paragraph. But cover to cover, I'd say six or seven each. Yeah, diving into specific segments. And that's a good mm-hmm. segue because can you tell us, for any of our listeners who uh, aren't familiar, can you tell us a little bit about what is your podcast, The Talking Beast Podcast? Sure. So it's called, yeah, podcast is called Talking Beasts, and it kind of grew out of the great fan community at NarniWeb.com. Um, a NarniWeber called Rillian first started it back in 2006. And the initial idea was just to react to the latest Narnia movie news, trailers, interviews, and things like that. Talk about how we feel. Do we think they're doing justice to the book? How is it coming along? I guess the decent thing to do would be to wait till the movie's out before we judge it. But come <laughs> on, where's the where's the fun in that? Um, Got to speculate. But, uh, y- <laughs> Um, <laughs> you know, when you first hear that a book you love is being made into a movie, I think uh, a lot of people, the first reaction is cool. And then the second reaction is, oh, um, <laughs> I hope they, hope they get it right. You get concerned. You start really thinking it through. And because like I was talking about, these books aren't just entertainment to me. They're not just entertainment to um, a lot of people. They also represent things that I think really matter. So they're really special to a lot of people. So uh, I think the idea behind the podcast initially was to make kind of give the fans a voice where they can say, hey, this matters to me, and also kind of communicate to the filmmakers that, hey, there's a lot of people who these stories really matter to. Don't just give us a popcorn muncher. Don't just give us something that's going to make you a quick buck and move on. This really matters to us. We treat these stories with respect. Obviously, anytime you turn a book into a movie, you've got to make changes. And their first responsibility as filmmakers is to make a good movie. But keep the essence of what makes these books special. Don't lose that in translation. So we do a lot of discussion about the latest news. You know, there is another Narnia in development right now. But oftentimes, um, we'll pick a random chapter or a topic and dive into that. Like recently, we did an episode talking about why is it that in storytelling, very often it's easier for me as a reader or a viewer to 
care about the fate of just a few characters as opposed to the fate of the entire world. That, that, that seems kind of counterintuitive to me, and yet I've seen that it seems so often to be the case. We did another one recently where we were comparing the different writing styles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and why the worlds feel real for different reasons. Tolkien had such a crazy, elaborate mythology that it felt like well, it, it gave it this credibility that it f- feels like this could all have been taken from some parchment discovered at the bottom of the ocean or something, and that this was all taken from real events. And then Narnia Lewis makes the characters, they aren't obviously, it doesn't have the elaborate mythology that Tolkien created, but it feels real because the characters feel very, the things they think feel very human. It's not always logical, but it's, yeah, I guess I felt that way before too. And he often doesn't tell you what something looked like so much as he tells you what it felt like to look at it. And sometimes you go, oh, yeah, I relate to that. So (laughs) two very different approaches to making a world feel real. So, I mean, we've been doing this for a while now, and we we still have not run out of things to talk about. We just started this because, hey, we love talking about Narnia. And I can't believe there's seven books. They're relatively short compared to certainly other fantasy stories. But we there's so much that Lewis packed into such a small space. So I don't know how long it's going to take us before we've exhausted Narnia. I'm sure your listeners hope that it takes you forever. Uh, can I ask, <laughs> what is the, in your opinion, which of the movies is the most faithful to the books? Uh, for me, the first one, Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, was about a uh, three or three and a half out of five. Uh, I think they did a good job on the story. Um, they don't they don't quite get some of the themes and some of mm. the joy and some of the emotional um, beats of it. But I think they did an okay. I, I've always said I think the director Andrew Adamson. I don't know if he really understood all the nuances of the book, but I think he really liked the book. So I think he does an okay job with the story. But I could certainly get into that. Well, but does it really get what I love about the book? Eh, kinda. <laughs> I'm kind of in the minority there. Probably most people in Narnia would like it a lot more than I do. And then Prince Caspian, I was really, the second one, I was really split right down the middle. There were about half of it, I think, is really solid, is good filmmaking, good storytelling, and does do a good job of capturing the themes Lewis was emphasizing in the book. And then the other half is just, ugh. So I'm not sure, but honestly, like, which one do I like more? It would have to be one of the first two, I think. Um, And then let's not get into the third one, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, because I'm still got... All right, good. You have have pretty similar thoughts as I do. Still got scars from that one. Um, But uh, yes, yeah, it would definitely be one of the first two. I don't think either of the first two have been a home run, but they've been aspects of them that that I would say I I admire as a movie and as an adaptation. I think think they're they're, they're okay movies and they're okay adaptations, I guess. Okay. That means we're gonna have a surprise question, which I went out and scoured the. I scoured the Do internet it. and found this. Um, that's the best I can say of it. So, <laughs> you are a new addition to the crayon box. What color would you be, and why? I would be rust. Why would I be rust? Rust. Um, I don't know. I think rust is. You know, we tend to think of it as like a dirty thing, but I think it's really kind of beautiful as like a texture, and so I think it's. I guess I just like the fact that it's, um, I don't know if I would be that. I just like that color. A rust is a texture. It's, uh, you think of it, oh, it's a sign that something's aging or it's wearing out. And yet I think it's really beautiful. And I guess I like that contradiction. Who came up with that one really quick. <laughs> See how that one comes yeah, back. Yeah, color recording. That, no color no me thought. Of, just boom, rust. Oh. Love it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, thank you, Neil, for finding that. Uh, Neil had to go and scour the internet because. Patreon Dragons, we need a couple more surprise questions. Head on over to the Patreon and give us some so we can ask our guests in the future. And thank you so much, Brian, for uh, answering with that uh, quick question or that quick answer. Yeah, I wasn't prepared for crayons, so we may have to. We should do this one again. I don't know if that was the definitive crayon answer. I think I've let you guys down already. 
We haven't covered <laughs> crayons on Talking Beast yet, so we've, we've already we've already won up to that one. <laughs> so let's jump into, speaking of Talking Beast, what we're here to talk about today, which is worlds where animals speak. And so obviously, Brian, as you are coming from being our resident expert on the world of Narnia, uh, a world where animals do speak quite often to adventurers uh, just in the world in general. Let's talk about, for our listeners who are Dungeon Masters creating their own world, what is so enticing about adding the element of talking beasts into a fantasy world? I guess in the case of Narnia, um, it's taking something that is familiar in our world and it's giving it a supernatural element. It's not just completely starting from scratch. It's giving something that, oh yeah, I know what that is, or maybe I've wondered um, what would it be like if I could talk to my dog or communicate with my dog or something like that? And so it's taking something that is in our world and just putting a supernatural uh, twist on it. It still has that one foot in the appearance of a little bit of emotional credibility, at least. In the case of Narnia, I, um, I think it serves as um, Narnia has humans and it has talking beasts and it has dumb beasts. And dumb beasts are just they're just like the ones we have in our world, basically, as far as we can tell. And then you have the talking beasts, which... They're not just, I mean, there's basically two ends of the spectrum here. You guess you could have talking animals that the only thing that's different about them to real animals we have in our world is that they can talk. But that's not what we see in Narnia. Certainly, they're, they're usually slightly different physically. Usually, like um, the beavers or Reepicheep the mouse is bigger than what they have in our world. But much more importantly, they're certainly a lot more intelligent. And slight spoilers if you haven't read The Magician's Nephew, but in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan, he, he creates dumb beasts and then he after he creates narnia and then he creates talking beasts and he tells them love think speak be walking trees be talking beasts and then um later he says creatures i give you yourselves so what talking beasts have that a dumb beast does not have is the ability to think and reason and really decide do i want to obey my animal instincts or not which is something that you and i have too um i i believe so a talking beast can be held accountable for their actions in a way that a, like we, we see a normal animal do something and we don't we, we don't usually it's a matter of opinion I guess but we don't usually think of an animal as really knowing what it's doing it's you know it's an instinct machine basically it gets hungry so if it sees food it's just gonna go eat it because its instincts tell it to do so unless there's a stronger instinct suppressing that but talking beasts and humans have the ability to hear those instincts and say do I want to follow that or not. And that makes them accountable and responsible. A talking beast is an honor for that reason in the books. And it's something you can lose. There are, Aslan warns that don't go back to your dumb beast ways and basically don't go back to evil, you know, love, think, be, or you could lose the ability um, to be a talking beast. And actually in Lewis's uh, timeline, there is this race of people that are so evil, they lose the ability to talk as well, and they become more like animals. But yeah, I would also say the talking beasts in Narnia, yeah, they're not just, they're animals, but they have the, the ability to talk. The beavers, yes, in the line of the witch and the wardrobe, they do build a dam, which real beavers do, but they also have a relatively human kind of house, and they use teacups, and they cook things, and they make a marmalade roll, and they have, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, they use silverware like we do. And uh, so... It's not just, so although there's this are in the horse and his boy, those are probably the most developed talking animals in the horse and his boy. You have Bree and Huynh, two horses. And while they are, they have all the kind of, hor their horsiness comes out and like they like to, 
you know, Bree is a horse who has grown up in slavery. He's grown up having to pretend that he's a dumb horse, that he can't talk, hmm. uh, growing up in enemy country. And then he's trying to get back to Narnia, and he starts wondering, but do talking horses like to roll on the ground? Because I've always done that, but maybe that's just a dumb habit that I picked up from the other dumb horses I was enslaved with. And spoiler alert, he well, I guess I won't say. Oh, but he gets to the end of the story. He <laughs> discovers whether or not that was just, is that something talking horses do as well? We have to give up this habit. So he still has these horsey instincts, but they also behave. In, so it's still like, yes, he's a horse, but he also has this human ability to reason and think. And he, he's not just a horse that has the ability to talk and that's it. I think in fantasy, that was probably two different categories of talking animals. The ones that are just animals and they can talk and that's the only difference but then you have ones who know they still have an ability to reason and think and intelligence and be like humans in that way i think it spawns a really interesting discussion about what does it really mean to be human when you have Hmm. two different kinds of animals one of them is one of them can't talk and the other can you can look at them and say what is the thing that makes these two kinds of animals different and which is a great way to discuss well what makes us different from animals so yeah, maybe a little more than what you were asking. <laughs> no, I, I love what you were saying, too, about uh, talking about Bree um, in The Horse and His Boy, like his horsiness still comes out. Because I think one of the things that entices me when I'm thinking about a fantasy world with talking animals is when I look at the animals that I want to make talking, every single animal that you decide, okay, well, we're going to have talking badgers. Okay, well, we're going to have talking owls, talking lions. Like, my first instinct is to go and do some research on that animal in our Mm -hmm. real world, Mm -hmm. and then the question comes from there is, does that animal's culture, that talking animal's culture, or Mm -hmm. does that specific personality of that talking animal, whichever one you're talking about, does it reflect in some way that creature in real life? And I think mm-hmm. you see that a lot in the world of Narnia. I mean, Aslan is taken uh, and he is the king. He is majestic, which is mm-hmm. often something we relate to a lion in real life, in our real world. Um even though, especially when we're talking about male lions, they are in real life quite lazy and it's the females <laughs> right. that do all the work, right? But then, like, I think of the beavers and the beavers. When you think of a beaver, you can't think about a beaver without thinking of its dam. And so C.S. Lewis made the beavers' home such an important part of their personality and who they are and hospitality, welcoming Mm -hmm. people in their world. Even though the beavers have a dam, when Mr. Beaver is leading the four Pevensies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy to it, and they see the dam, and they feel this need to say, what a lovely dam, Mr. Beaver, and compliment it. And there's this look, he has this sense of pride about it, which is a very human thing. Animals probably don't look at what they just made and go, wow, I really did a good job on that. Um, But (laughs) Mr. Beaver has a sense of pride about it, so it's taking that um, his animal roots, but adding something that is recognizable to something us as humans human as well. to it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And personality behind it. And I love that aspect. I think of even like, I mean, this goes beyond C.S. Lewis's world. The, this, I, I feel like this is a poll, but, uh, Kepora Gebora is the owl that is a reoccurring character in the legend of Zelda series. And he's always seen as this wise figure, which is a hundred percent what you see, of owls. Even mm-hmm. if you go into uh stories like the stories of Winnie the Pooh, you can see 
aspects of real world animals in these Uh characters in those stories. And I love it because you can take it from that angle and you can say, okay, are these talking beasts, are these talking animals going to reflect the true nature of what C.S. Lewis would call the dumb beasts of the world? Uh Or you can go the opposite way too. I think of Mouse Guard and how these tiny little mice, that's a world where the question was asked, well, what if these tiny little mice that had sentient properties that Mm -hmm. were very human – were just some of the bravest warriors in all like, of which, the land, which is not which is Reaper think of when you think of them. Which is Reaper Cheap too, yes. Exactly. Which is Reaper Cheap and Narnia, who's one of the favorite characters. Yeah. So the other way yep. is to go the op- the opposite direction from something, and the fact that Reaper Cheap is so small, but has this such a sense of duty and honor, and would gladly give his life for his king. So, Mitch, you said something. Well, this is I'm going to start an internet fight on the uh, podcast. Uh, so, you used the word <laughs> sentient, and Good. recently the word sentient has been kind of pushed down towards like my dog is sentient because it can still mm-hmm. fe- feel and do some things. So, the word that kind of has been like brought up more is sapient, and I think that's kind of the discussion that we're having is hmm. that the sapient creatures can think. And reason and have pride and do these things. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I think that's the most interesting thing to me about the concept is like you're really just utilizing an, a rarely tapped resource. I won't say an untapped resource because, you know, we still, I mean, I know I use creatures, if you will, in my game and so do you and other people, but like adding ones that talk is only adding. Like, I don't, you know, I don't feel that there's any subtraction really from the world by doing this. I think it's really mm-hmm. only adding in more to your game and having an NPC who's a giant owl, which in a lot of ways is kind of scarier to me. You know, like, like if it's a guy who's really wise, he's probably old and fragile. If it's a giant owl, he might get mad, pick me up, and drop <laughs> me. And so it definitely changes the dynamic of that conversation. But I think, yeah, the idea that these creatures are sapient and it's that thinking, it's that reasoning, you know, and it's these emotions that you know, the dumb beasts, if you will, would not feel. Yeah, and then and like going back to the kind of the contradiction way to do it like playing against type. Uh, so Reaper Chief has a great line where he says, you know, Aslan asks him, but do you really need a tail? And uh, Reaper Chief says, well, I can eat and sleep and die for my king without one. And so those are the three essentials to life he lists. Eat, sleep, die for your king. Those are the three things you just have to do in life. Um, that's just that basic to him, despite being a little mouse. And so kind of going against type there, that makes him all the more heroic, the fact that he's a little mouse and is so brave. I guess those are the two basic options of the talking animal. You can either go, you know, do research and say, well, what kind of person would they be? Or you could go the opposite direction, like with Reaper Chief, and have him be the opposite. With Aslan, I think it's not like being a lion. I think that's more to do with the fact that Aslan is simul, you know, the big phrase that they always often use in the books to describe Aslan is not safe, but good. Uh, a lion is something that on one hand is very beautiful and you kind of want to hug a lion. It looks, it's so soft, but it could tear your head off at the same time. And Aslan is simultaneously all powerful and he's not a tame lion. We don't know what he's going to do. Um, there's a line in the silver chair where Jill asks him, do you eat girls? 
And he says, mm, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, <laughs> cities and realms. And he just says this as a fact. He's not trying to scare her or anything. It's, well, here's the fact. I'm a lion. I've eaten things. And so Aslan is in one sense, you know, a, a sort of a father figure and a source of wisdom. But at the same time, he's a lion and he created Narnia and he's all powerful and so there's this, he's really, really intimidating at the same time. And so the image of a lion, I think, is more to do of trying to evoke that kind of strange emotions in the reader than anything else. Yeah, that danger element to it that if you're on its Aslan side, this powerful lion, there is a sense, there can be a sense of security. If you're not, <laughs> there is this sense right. of imminent danger. And right. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Kind of like you guys were both saying, like, Neil, you brought up the being sapient and like you're not taking away. You're just adding to the world. And like Brian, you were saying, like, this is how it's done in C.S. Lewis's world. And it's it is deep in C.S. Lewis's world with meaning of why an animal is talking. But by adding talking beasts, by adding talking animals to your world. You don't need to, when you decide I want to do this, you don't need to say, okay, now every chipmunk talks. <laughs> every right. one of the chipmunks. Know. But this this could be something special to a small group of animals. It could exist in one specific country. It could exist because um, of the innate goodness, as you were saying, or the lack of because of some evilness or depending on what your pantheon in the world, if this is where this trait has come from, desires, what animals do speak, what animals don't speak. And so maybe this is a good time for us to shift and say, all right, you're, you're creating a fantasy world where animals speak. What are some ways that this can be the origin? What are some origins to the lore of why animals as a whole or certain groups of animals speak in a fantasy world? I mean, I think the the go-to one could be because that's what they do. Uh, and just, just in that, like it's always been. <laughs> it's the natural... Yeah, which, state of things. And that definitely would have mm-hmm. to come into play when you're starting a new campaign or you're starting a new world with a new group. That's not really something you can retcon and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, all the animals kind of talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's happening now. So I think, but I think if you were setting up a new world, it's definitely an idea to have to add something new and different for your players to experience. Yeah, I think in the case of Narnia, we start, we come into this world, we see that some of the animals talk and some of them can't. And Aslan is such a mysterious character throughout a lot of the books. We think we kind of know him, and then in the next book we learn more about him, and we realize, oh, wow, we didn't know anything about him. Gosh. And so then we learn that, you know, spoiler spoiler alert, I guess, if you want to write The Magician's Nephew, but Aslan created Narnia, and initially he created just dumb beasts, and then, it, then he took some of them and made them talking beasts. And it says something maybe about Aslan's character that he doesn't just want to create instinct machines, that he wants beings that can make real choices. If you're just an instinct machine and you just do whatever your instincts tell you, whether that's eat or sleep or mate or whatever, you can't make real choices. And by Aslan giving them the ability to think and reason, now they can make real choices and truly love. They can truly make the decision to love. You can't love if you just do that because you're programmed to do it. You have to have the ability to not love. And so Aslan chose to give the talking beast the ability to do that. And that tells us something about Aslan's character, who remains a mysterious character to me in many ways after reading the book so many times. I come up with all these different angles on him every time 
every time I read it, what Lewis didn't say about Aslan is just as interesting as what he did say. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a that's a clue, I think, into Aslan's nature that apparently choice is important to him. Yeah, Aslan and the the Narnia approach has this idea that it was a divine choice to granting mm-hmm. this ability to speak. And maybe, like Neil said, maybe it starts at the very beginning of the world. And so this is, it's just mm-hmm. how it is. Uh, animals speak, whether it's all or whether it's some, mm-hmm. this is how. And then you, as the creator of your own world and the creator of your pantheon, can decide why is it that some do, some don't, some lose, some uh, mm-hmm. continue to keep that aspect. So there's that aspect of it can come from gods, the divine mm-hmm. uh, choice. Mm-hmm. I think another obvious uh, answer to this is that if it's not natural or if it's not from the divine, then it comes from something unnatural, maybe scientific, maybe magical, some mm-hmm. event, some action that is done either on purpose or by accident by mankind or other humanoid races that creates this effect in my world, there are mouse folk because a wizard decided that he was going to start experimenting on mice and seeing if he could bring upon, mm-hmm. bring upon them, like Neil, you said, this sapien aspect to be able to speak. And they were able to escape and run into the wild and they created their own society. But figuring out that origin can create for your Whatever animal that you're creating that's going to be speaking, whether it's magical, whether it's divine, whether it's just natural, uh, that can Mm -hmm. speak a lot to how the culture of these creatures is in your world. I think the interesting thing and the reason why I love these discussions that we have on the podcast is I already don't agree with myself anymore in that (laughs) the information that Mm -hmm. you guys are providing in this back and forth is. I already know how I could retcon it now because the idea of it being a divine thing. What if a deity has a set of domains and something happens and now they have the domain of animals and they decide, you know, well, you know what? Why, why can't these creatures talk? They can now done. And there it is. There's your shift from none of the creatures in the world talking to a huge portion, if not all of them talking because of a shift in what powers the deities have. And so, yeah, I was wrong. You can retcon it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> or, or Neil, like kind of going along with that, who's to say that uh, when you've already played in this world that the, the chirping, the tweeting of the birds wasn't already a language between themselves and it just took mm-hmm. time for certain animals that have the ability to learn different languages to start to bridge that gap and to learn the common tongue or for humans or dwarves or whatever to start to learn the language of the birds or the badgers or whatever mm-hmm. these creatures are. And it's I mean, that's what happens when real world different cultures, if they have different languages mm-hmm. and they first meet each other, they're not going to immediately be able to communicate like the three of us are communicating now with the same language. You've got to start learning. You've got to start teaching each other. And so why not have that be an aspect that, hey, later down the line in history, we figured out this random chirping. The birds were actually speaking to each other the yeah. whole entire time. Yeah. And then the idea of, yeah, like of there being a kind of a logic behind it. And I think that 
I don't think that Narnia has a, a real scientific reason for animals talking. I mean, anima, Aslan says, be talking beasts, and there you go. We have talking beasts. Yep. Although, But there is a logic. At the same time, there's a logic behind it, even though it's not really a, a, it's not a scientific rationale, but there's a logic behind it in that you know, Aslan you know, warns them, don't go back to your animal ways where you just follow your instincts or you may, you may lose the ability to, ability to talk. It works in reverse too, by the way. On the not dumb beasts, not talking mice, do something really, you know, when Aslan is on the stone table and is tied down, these mice come and they eat away the cords. They're not talking mice yet. We later fi- find out that was the beginning of talking mice mm-hmm. in Narnia, that they eventually became talking mice because of that good deed. That was at least the start of that development. Then we do, there is an example in the last battle of an animal that actually turns turns back into a dumb beast, basically, because something evil that they do. There is a, even though it's not a scientific, here's how it actually works, there's still a, there are still rules and there's a logic behind it. Yeah. Would you say that in the last uh, beast that that's a shift in that animal's nature? Oh, very, yeah, absolutely. Like it, it, it says something like, you know, they it looked in the beast's eyes and they could just tell that there's, it, it's gone. You know, there, there's something like it clearly lost the ability to talk, clearly lost the ability to think and reason. The, the, whatever's in there looking back at me is I look into those eyes, and whatever's behind those eyes looking back is is fundamentally different. It's it's almost like he's died. Yeah, I was trying to make a bad pun, but I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man, I'm usually good isn't at picking that, up isn't on that, puns. Isn't that uh. the creature's name, Shift? Ah, uh, that's I was that's that's not Shift. Oh, actually. it's not Shift. Uh, it's, uh, it, that's that's it, my it, bad it, memory then. That's okay. It's it's Ginger actually. Ah, okay. okay. I have a mm-hmm. hold on. I have a a total side thing because most of the discussion we've been having is pretty serious. I I think it was you, Mitch, saying that the chirping is like, oh wait, this is this very intricate mm-hmm. language that is talking, and it made me think of the Rick and Morty episode where he figured out that squirrels run the world, <laughs> and. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could definitely be, I mean, just a, you know, another way that it could definitely be that they have their own language that you don't understand. That also qualifies as talking to animals and figuring out that like tongues, like you could cast tongues and all of a sudden like stumble into this very in-depth plot of like, wait, wait, what? Like, you know, the concept of like, oh, I can hear animals. And now my dog, instead of barking, just says, hey, all the time. Hey, hey, hey. Mm-hmm. You know, and, but mm-hmm. then you realize that it's like. <laughs> Food, food. Mine, yeah. mine, 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 mine. <laughs> then you realize, no, wait, mm-hmm. we didn't know that there was like this untapped, like intelligent race doing all of these things. I think it'd be another really cool plot line. Yeah. And it may just take that ranger spending so much time in the woods that he realizes every time he lights a fire in the woods that the same sound of chirping happens and going, I, this seems strange. This is like, reoccurring all the time are they reacting to what i'm what i'm doing are they saying speaking because of what i'm doing but so we've talked a lot about the origin of where this power to speak can come from so if you are creating a fantasy world with talking animals what can be some of the implications the impacts on a world where now you have animals that speak well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is the – it kind of makes you wonder, well, what's the hierarchy? Hmm. Are talking animals just – do they have the same rights and the same value as normal animals? And what about humans? In Narnia, you have you – know, again, you have dumb beasts. You should not be cruel to them. That's very much looked down upon in Narnia. But it's okay to kill them for meat. That's not the case with uh, a talking beast. There's a really – one of the darker moments in the whole series when – in the, the silver chair, when Jill, Eustace, and Pologlum – are eating and they're eating they're in a giant city 
and the giants feed them meat and they start eating and they realize they, th- they thought they were eating they just assumed they were eating a a dumb stag they've actually been eating a talking stag mm-hmm. and it goes through their different reactions uh, you have jill who just came to narnia very recently for the first time she's still getting her head around what is this world She's well thinks it was very you know mean of the giants to kill the poor stag. Then you have Eustace who's been there a lot, lot longer and he feels really horrified. And then you get Puddleglum who's lived in Narnia his whole life and it says mm-hmm. that he felt Lewis writes he felt just as you or I would feel if we just realized we were eating a baby. Mm-hmm. So there is this this idea that there is, there's very much a difference in terms of you know their rights and the the value or whatever, however you want to put it of a dumb beast versus a talking beast. And in the line the witch in the wardrobe. You know, again, even though talking bees, like, if you kill one, it's it's basically murdering a human. I think it, it's looked on as basically the same. And yet talking beasts in Narnia still say, oh, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, that's such a great honor to be one of those. And there's still a sense of, yes, to being a talking beast, an ability given to us by Aslan, that's a big deal. But to be a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve is the greatest honor of all. And so there is a more of an honor to be a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. But nonetheless, both of them would have basically the same rights and basically the same value. So I think that once you start introducing talking animals into your world, I think you have to ask that question of what what kind of hierarchy is created here. Yeah, and and I mean you could take it so much further if you're if you're having a fantasy world where all the beasts are talking, that opens up a lot of questions to, well, then do you live in a world where people try not to eat meat or what's the darker end of that when they do for both sides uh an animal who eats uh-huh. a eats a human or a human who eats an animal like if every uh-huh. beast is talking that changes the dynamic and then yeah like you said like you brought up Bree from the horse and his boy and how he had to pretend to be a dumb beast and lived in what was slavery because he was an intelligent creature uh, for years, uh-huh. there's a difference between mm-hmm. having a dog that is a dumb beast, and <laughs> now I'm thinking of Pluto and Goofy from Disney, and going, "There's a difference." Although honestly, sometimes Goofy seems dumber than Pluto, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. <laughs> that's true. I also think that one of the implications is that if you live in a world where animals can speak, then that has to affect much differently privacy in a world and where you're away from prying eyes uh in lord of the rings we have mention of the trees being spies well the birds are also spies of saruman you've got the crab eye from dunlin uh that are spies of saruman you go out into the wilderness you think you're alone the birds are watching the squirrels are watching mm-hmm. the, the badgers and- like all these creatures can see and hear and so how does that change how your your playable characters act in a world where they can constantly be being watched by other creatures and talking beasts of course can have the same enhanced senses that normal animals would have so they may be able to sense things know things that we cannot and then you mentioned lord of the rings uh in narnia as well that's one of the my favorite creepiest lines in all the books when Tumnus says, we have to walk quietly. Even some of hmm. the trees are on her side. Well, how, how, how are we supposed to hide yeah. from that? Well, uh, 
I, I was going to mention that same thing, but as a positive, now I'm not. Um, okay, so moving. <laughs> no, but the idea that, okay, so I am in the wilderness, you know, and one, there is the need to be more guarded than potentially otherwise. But the flip side is then you stumble onto an extremely hospitable beaver and you have a place that you can stay and someone that you can talk to and someone you can learn from as to what's happening in the area. Now that, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know and it just turns everywhere into kind of the same level that you would have in like a village or a city you have all these creatures that have lived there you know in their entire lives and also that the that is another interesting impact from a cultural perspective is what is the lifespan of a creature a a talking Hmm. beast if you Mm -hmm. will and what do you decide that to be because i don't know if you guys have Mm -hmm. seen it on the what i don't know it's on the internet. I don't know why I failed because I couldn't remember <laughs> what site it was on. But essentially, it's like the perspective of a dog mm-hmm. talking about their human hmm. and how, you know, like they. Are we talking about the, the oatmeal comic? No, no, no. This is the super sad one where the human <laughs> is passing away and the dog hmm. is ta- speaking about them in this extremely reverent manner because this human has been around for generations when you think of it through the dog's eyes. And so if you're in birds and beavers and everything Uh, and are cycling through at a much faster rate, the way that they approach the world will be very different. You know, that's kind of that same way that elves have a very long-term perspective because they live for thousands of years where it's like, Oh, these flighty humans and they're like whims and all this crazy stuff they do. It's like, well, yeah, we're not here for long. We got to, we kind of got to get after it. I mean, you've got a lot more to figure it out. Yeah. I guess that's something Lewis doesn't really explore in any depth. We know that there's a mention of, we know that talking beasts do age as a reference of Reepicheep was in his cradle at one point. He has a memory connected to when he was a baby, but we don't have a clear sense. I don't think of, what are their lifespans? How it, does it, it must is it different be different um, for certain ones because having created mouse folk in my world, they like real world mice have a very short lifespan, and I know Reepicheep certainly lives longer than those. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, not we're yeah, not maybe absolutely. given those details, and I mean that's okay because fantasy worlds you don't even need you don't always need to be worried about the details, um, at least right away in the creation of it. You just go to a podcast and they fill it all in for you. (laughs) I love that idea, though, Neil, that you were saying like, oh, we're in the wilderness. We're lost. Rather than walking by that beaver dam without having second thoughts about it, you're like, let's go ask the residents of that beaver dam over there. Oh, there's a cave over there. Perhaps if we offer the bear inside some honey or some meat, we can get some information. And, and then you have to, it's once again, you're, you're going, how do I approach this animal? How do I respect the culture that this animal has? But you also have the question of if you're in a world with dumb beasts, <laughs> is that bear just a dumb bear? Is it just going to come out and attack me for whatever yeah. thing I try to offer it? So you're taking a chance in doing that. So yeah. There's a scene in Prince Caspian where they're um, talking to a squirrel named Pattertwig, and Pattertwig runs away to like has to go run away to his house and come back. And they say, "Look away, look away! It's really rude with squirrels to when they run off to look at them because they might think that you, you want to see where their store yeah. of nuts is or something like that." It's just a, a cultural thing that the Car- Caspian wasn't necessarily aware of and had to be reminded of, or Which he could risk offending the squirrel. Small but wonderful element to speaking to that culture. But also, let's just take a moment and say, Pattertwig, how can you get a better name for a squirrel in a fantasy world? That's just a great name. 
I think, I mean, first and foremost, I think we have given a lot of ideas out and I think we could probably have 10 more podcasts. You know, I, I think maybe we could have like maybe 12 years worth of podcasts. I don't know. <laughs> let's what talk do you about think, each animal individually. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yes. Okay. But let's do it. I have an extremely important question for you. And that is where can people go to find you on this great internet that we have? You can go to narniweb.com. And then I'm posting news stories there all the time. If they want to go to Talking Beast, just click on podcast. Um, that's where we have uh, new episodes. This fall, it'll be every 7th and 17th. There'll be a new episode. Unless if there's news about the new Narnia movie or series or whatever it's going to be that's in development, we all will often spit one out really quick. But at the very least, we'll have a new episode on the 7th and 17th. And there's, you know, we have a thriving community. We have a Facebook page as well. People who are really passionate, not, not just about Narnia, but what Narnia represents. And it leads us to a lot of interesting places. But we look into the wardrobe door and find not just, oh, Chronicles of Narnia. We find it leads to all kinds of other things. And all this, Lewis was able to pack so many complicated ideas in a very kind of simple story. And it makes it easier to take these complicated ideas with a lot of implications. It makes it easier to talk about it and think about it. And Lewis did that in his nonfiction as well. But so there's a there's always a way more to discuss. Narnyweb.com and the podcast Fantastic. is Talking Beasts. And definitely go check awesome. out that podcast and that website. And thank yep. you so much, Brian, for joining us on the show. Yes. Thank you. We just want to thank Brian from the Talking Beast podcast again for coming on and sharing his vast knowledge of all things Narnia and all things Talking Beast, and hopefully it was helpful to you. And if it was, and you want to tell us about how you have Talking Beast in your campaign, as always, you can email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And if you love this episode and the other ones we do, head on over to iTunes where you can leave us a five-star review where we can get in front of more people. And of course, we will read it on air. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And you can also search for us and like our Facebook page. If you want updates about the show, both of those places are the perfect place to go for that. And as always, this week we have another Patreon shout out. And today's Patreon shout out goes to the, the playlist. DMS. And we just want to thank them for being a bronze dragon and already tearing up the forums. I've already seen them posting and interacting. So thank you very much for your support. Yes, thank you so much. And we hope that you have, and maybe Neil can confirm this, players now. One can only hope. And as always, the DMs Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out other shows like Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, Geek Wars, and Detentions and Dragons, and more. Well, that's all that we have for you on this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm DM Neil. Good night and good luck. And remember to keep on Dungeon Mastering. Goodbye.